Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am your host for this week, Shannon Vasconcelos, and it is now officially post-Labor Day. So I know, depending on where you are in the country, some folks have been back in school for a while now, but I think post-Labor Day, we can officially say that is now back-to-school season. I think just about everybody's back. Uh, so I hope everyone out there is settling back into the school year well, we have a great show lined up for you today. In the back half of the show, my colleague uh, and fellow Getting In host, Sally Ganga, will be joining me to answer listener-submitted questions. So stay tuned to get make sure you get your most pressing questions answered. First, though, we are going to talk to another colleague of mine and former Brandeis University admissions officer, Julia Jones. Welcome, Julia. Hey, Shannon. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Doing well, doing well. It's uh, post post Labor Day, so it's it's uh, busy, but good. <laughs> exactly, and it's still wicked hot, as we say here in in New England. It doesn't quite feel like fall yet, but we're gonna try and get ourselves into the fall vibes. We're gonna drink our pumpkin spice lattes, and we're gonna yeah. talk about uh, about college. Um, so, specifically, Julia, you and I are gonna be talking today about honors programs and honors colleges. And I'm really excited about it. Um, I think it's a great option for a lot of students. And I have to give full disclosure, I attended an honors college. Um, so I might be a little biased in, in this space, but I'm going to try to not let my, my biases take over this conversation <laughs> too much, Julia. That's good. Um, <laughs> but I would love for you to fill us in, Julia. First of all, let's start with the basics. What are honors programs and honors colleges and and I guess incorporated into that is is there a difference between the two sometimes you'll see a program advertised as an honors program or as an honors college is is there a difference yeah, yeah, great question, and um, yeah, and I think you should, you know, be biased and, and positive towards honors colleges because they are great options for students. Um, you know, what they are is they're they're usually offered at um, you know special programs that are offered to certain students um, at usually public larger public universities. So I look at it as kind of like a school within a school in some ways. There there are usually you know opportunities to kind of create a smaller setting, um, you know, with with some opportun more opportunities for students. Um, to connect with professors, to have research opportunities, different different things. But you know, I think of them as kind of like perks for you know for really strong students and and a way for for students to kind of make a, a especially a you know a public university but a larger school feel smaller and and you know give you things that you might ordinarily find more at a smaller school, um, you know, or a smaller private school sometimes too. So um, I think. You know, the difference between honors programs and colleges is a little tricky because they can sometimes be used interchangeably. Um, and, you know, like so many things in college admissions um, in the college world, it, it depends on the college in terms of what what each one offers. Um, and you think in, in broad strokes, 
and honors college is generally feels like a, a separate college within a bigger university in the same way that you might have, you know, at a, a bigger school, you might have a college of business and a college of engineering um, and a college of arts and sciences. You also would have kind of an honors college, which has its own, you know, separate buildings and residence halls, you know, connected to it. So, um, so I think that's often the distinction, whereas an honors program might still have a lot of the same elements and, um, and things that they offer, but they may not necessarily be a separate school or college within the university. It may be across more, more disciplines in, in that way too. So, um, so I think that's the biggest, the biggest difference. Um, but I have seen them kind of be used pretty similarly in, in, in uh, across the board. Yep. That makes total sense. Um, So I think you touched on a little bit sort of some of the advantages of attending an honors college or participating in an honors program, but, you know, why should students consider it or are there particular students that this might be well suited for? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, in general, um, again, I, I always use the word cohort because I kind of feel like that's a really good word to describe, you know, the the community that becomes an honors college. It's sort of similar kind of like minded students, students who are, you know, really, you know, are looking for perhaps a, a more, um, you know, intellectual environment to some extent or just, you know, and and, and I think for colleges, it's a way to attract and and um, enroll the best and the brightest and, and um, by giving them, you know, different opportunities. So, you know, for many schools, um, you know, there are um, opportunities to do research with professors to, um, you know, to maybe or to have, you know, more contact in a smaller, smaller classes often, you know, comes along with that. Um, Some schools will give preferential treatment when it comes to registration. So you get to be first in line to register for -hmm. courses, which at a bigger school can can be a big deal. Yeah. um, Some schools do have, you know, specific residence halls, you know, sometimes, you know, with sort of themes or or at least so you're you're living with people who are taking the same classes who are um, in the same program. So that, too, can be, um, you know, can be uh, beneficial. And um, and of course, scholarship funds. There's often sometimes, you know, scholarship money that comes with that too, which, which can also be, you know, obviously a huge plus as well. So, um, so again, the different facets are going to depend on the college, but I feel like it's, it's sort of a, you know, school within a school, you know, perks and, yeah. and opportunities to really give you, you know, much more hands-on, you know, experience and, and, you know, with, with other students who kind of share the same, the same goals and interests. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And when I, when I attended college, I was at the University of Massachusetts for what it's worth, the Commonwealth Honors College at, at that particular university. And actually, when I attended back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, it, it was going through sort of a transition from being simply an honors program to a residential honors college. That transition sort of happened while I was there. So that that line is actually particularly blurred for me because I sort of, I, I, I would say my experience was probably though, I think I graduated from the honors college because they had made that transition more of an honors program experience. Mm-hmm. They did not have the special honors dorms yet, uh, which are, fantastic for anyone looking at these programs. Look at the Commonwealth <laughs> College at UMass. I wish I could go back to school today and live in those amazing dorms, which did not yeah. exist when I was there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I think for me, the biggest um, sort of tangible difference the honors program played in my life was the 
smaller class sizes for their honors classes where I took some classes at UMass that were, you know, 200 person lecture halls, but all of the honors classes were capped at that time. I think it was 15 students max. So you really got that more small school environment and the close interaction with the professors and the research opportunities. That that yeah. was the biggest perk on my end in my experience. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think for many students, it can make, you know, they may not necessarily be as interested in their public university because it's large and if they're looking for a smaller class. So that that makes a public university not only financially, you know, much more attractive, but also, you know, it's it's not only just using that as a as a financial safety choice, but it then becomes, wow, okay, I can I can get what I normally would get at a smaller private, you know, liberal arts college, <laughs> you know, at you know, at UMass or at Arizona State, you know, and and pay in state tuition and possibly even get a scholarship. So, yeah, lots lots of really right. great reasons why it it can be a, an excellent idea for the right student. Totally. And again, I'm biased, but I do think it's it is kind of like a best of both worlds experience where yeah. you get the benefits of both sort of us maybe a small liberal arts college along with the benefits of like a large research university, and you can get them both in one place. Exactly. I think it's really great. And I forget, you might have already mentioned this, scholarships. Do there tend to be scholarships involved with honors college attendance? There can be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not every school does that, but, but yeah. yes, I think for some schools, that's another piece of it. It's, you know, using scholarships in addition to the honors program as a way to, again, for them, for colleges, it's about, you know, attracting the students that they really want. And, and, um, and so scholarship along with an honors program and the perks that go along with it as well can really be, you know, that sweet spot, both for, for the colleges, but also the students too. So, yeah. Totally. Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, so we went over a lot of benefits. Are there any downsides you would identify with attending an, an honors college? I mean, I think it's it's obviously not for every student. I think you have to really look at okay, is this something that I want? You know, for some students, they they don't necessarily need or want the you know the small classes. They want the big you know, yeah. courses in the big, you know, in the big classroom size, um, you know, you do have to maintain a certain GPA at most schools. So, um, and it's, the work is hard. I mean, there's, you know, there, um, so I think that, that too, for some students, it, it might be, you know, pressure that they're not necessarily, you know, ready for or, or interested mm -hmm. in. So, um, so as with anything, it's got to be a fit, um, you know, it's got to be a fit for, for, for each student in terms of, um, uh, you know, of, of the opportunities there, but, uh, you know, and you're still, you know, it's, it's not, if you don't get, if you decide not to do the honors program, obviously you can still do the, you know, the main, you know, university, but, um, at some schools, it can be harder if you want to major in something really specific that isn't covered. If it's an honors college, you might be able to double major, but it adds, you know, it, there's more coursework. So, so again, it means, you know, more coursework in four years where, you know, so that that can be, you know, that can be an added uh, push. So again, the right student, it can be a fabulous opportunity, but if it's not the right fit, then it's not the right fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how about how do you actually apply to an to an honors college or to an honors program? Is it do you have to fill out a separate application or is it different at every school? Another hashtag. It depends. I'm yeah. guessing might be your answer. Most common phrase I utter every day um, is yeah. it depends. Um, I think that, you know, in general, I think the majority of, of honors colleges or programs um, do have some kind of a separate application or something extra that you have to do. Um, but not all. And I think Massachusetts, you, you 
UMass is a good example of that. The Commonwealth College is a place where, you know, they they screen their applicants. You don't have to do anything extra. You know, there's no extra essay. It's just, you know, if you're qualified, if you're an applicant that they think would be a great fit, then you're offered that opportunity when you are offered admission. Um, but I think most schools have some kind of something extra. It can be a full application. Um, in most cases, I think it is, it's usually some extra writing, some extra essays. Um, some of them can be quite lengthy too. Um, I think about, you know, Penn State's um, Schreier's Honors College, um, very prestigious, one of the better known ones in the country, but also their application is is pretty intense. Um, you know, it's the same Penn State application. You use the common application and apply, but if you're applying to the Honors College, there's, I think, about... Um, 10 separate essays that you have to answer. Some are longer, some are short, and they're very intellectual. They're very, you know, they, they really are looking for depth. And, you know, they ask from everything from, you know, books that have really inspired you to issues that you're, you know, current current issues that you're really uh, thinking about. And so so I think that I've seen students who've, who've been curious and looked at those questions and said, okay, no, that's not for me. Um, and some students look at those questions are like, okay, let's go. This is, you you know, it's a lot of work, but if, if, you know, sometimes that can, can, you know, show you a little bit about what, what the expectations are. Um, some schools have earlier deadlines. So, you know, if you um, are applying, you know, you think maybe, okay, I'll apply regular decision or maybe I'll just, you know, apply when I'm ready. Um, but some schools might require you to apply for like at the early action deadline or a specific, you know, deadline. I think BU has um, a December 1st deadline for their honors um, honors program. So, so you have to like, as always, read the fine print, right? See what, you know, as you're putting your list of colleagues together and requirements and deadlines you want to be looking at at what else honors programs you know what what other requirements and what things you have to do if you're considering that um, as as a as part of your process that makes sense and I'll just piggyback onto that because I need to pull in my finance background <laughs> wherever I can in the little finance tips that we we talked a little bit about how sometimes scholarships can go hands in hand with with an offer of admission to an honors college or honors program. Uh, but that same policy that a number of schools have where you have to apply by an earlier deadline to be considered for the honors program, you also may have to apply early to be considered for scholarships. That's a, well, certainly not everywhere. It's sort of a fairly common practice. So for students out there listening, if you're a strong student who think that you're in the market for some merit scholarships or you're thinking an honors program or honors college may be right for you, you have to get on top of this stuff early and start doing your research because you don't want to you don't want to discover on December 2nd, <laughs> you, you know, if, when yeah. you're applying to BU that you've missed their deadline by exactly. by one day for the for the honors program. So right. definitely something to to look out for. Um, how, how about, um, I think, I think you mentioned that it, honors programs or honors colleges are largely at, um, large public universities for, for the most part, is it at all large public universities or are there, um, you know, do, if you're looking at the, the public, the flagship public university in your state, is it definitely going to have an honors program or not necessarily? What schools have these programs? Not 
necessarily. I mean, I think I think, you know, again, they and, and it's not just limited to larger publics. Like there are some smaller privates. I think Swarthmore was one that as I was researching has a, um, a an honors program. So, again, it's still, you know, kind of giving you that extra level of, of challenge, although it's not as as I think crucial for a school that, you know, when you're already getting a lot of the benefits of, you know, having small classes and connecting with professors. Um, but, yeah, not every not every honors, uh, not every public university is going to offer that. I think you, you know, some of the big ones that I, you know, I mentioned Penn State, um, Arizona State is kind of one, also one of the more well-known ones and really comprehensive and they offer it. It's all of their campuses have, um, it's the Barrett Honors Program there. University of Pittsburgh is another one that has a really uh, robust honors program that I've had students apply to. So I think it's a lot of the big name um, public universities, but not all. So you do have to research that. Um, I think I always encourage students to, you know, to do that as you're, as you're looking at um, schools and looking at requirements. And especially if you're considering some of your, it doesn't even have to be, you don't even have to be a resident. So it doesn't have to be your public institution. But if you are looking at, you know, a university, even if you're from Massachusetts and you're looking at Arizona State, yeah, I mean, it, you might look at that and say, okay, well, Arizona State would be probably an, an easy admit for me, you know, and so um, honors programs generally are going to be much, much more selective. That's, you know, kind of probably goes without saying, but it is, <laughs> you know, as they're looking for the the strongest applicants. So, um, so I think for many students, it's, it's a great choice if you feel like, okay, you know what, I know that it would be easy to get into the main part of the university, but, you know, I want something that's going to give me a little bit more of a challenge. Um, and some of them can be extraordinarily selective too. Um, Penn State, I, you know, the students that I have seen who are really strong candidates for Penn State's applicant uh, honors program are, are applicants that are also competitive with some of the most selective colleges in the country. So, so, um, and again, for many students, it's an option because again, financially, it can be a really great, great choice. So, um, so I think as with always, you got to do your research. You got to, you know, as you're looking at schools, um, you know, my advice is, you know, don't rule out a larger public university if it's not, if you feel like that's not necessarily going to be a fit for you because look a little further to see, hey, maybe there's an honors program or college that might, might make that school, you know, feel a little bit more like what you're looking for and, and give you those opportunities. So, so I think it's another thing to consider that often, you know, students or families don't, don't necessarily aren't aware of. Definitely. And I was just thinking, and I have absolutely no idea if they still do this or if other schools do this, but I remember during my time at UMass, if you were not offered admission to the honors program, when you applied to the university, you could actually come as quote unquote, regular student, non-honors program student to the university. And if you did well, you could apply to be admitted to the honors program actually later on, if you were, you know, a year into your enrollment and you were looking for, you know, maybe some greater challenge and maybe some of the perks of being an honors program or an honors college um, student that you could actually uh, apply later. So that that's a possibility as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Not every school does that, but you're right. That's a part of, you know, what you want to look at to see, okay, if I'm not selected right away, can I, you know, sometimes the answer is yes, but in many cases, the answer is no. Yeah. So, you know, but at least, you know, going ahead, what, what, what you you know, what the, the possibilities are. Yeah, exactly. Always, always do your research. I think that's, yeah. we could apply that to any segment we could possibly be doing on this show. Exactly. Hashtag do your depends. research. Hashtag do your research. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think we, we're 
almost done, but if 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 students have listened to, to this and say, ooh, I like the sound of this, this might be for me, and they start looking into honors colleges, uh, what what kinds of questions do you think that they they should ask to make sure that they have done that research? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, asking again what the, you know, what the, the parameters of the program are, what do they offer, um, you know, can you know, and, and questions too, like, what happens if I, if I decide after maybe a year that it's not for me that I don't want to do that? You know, what happens? Can I just move into another major? Um, you know, how does how does all of that work? So I think that's a great question. Because again, every school is going to handle that a little differently. Um, you know, asking about especially for schools that may have a separate honors college, you know, are they are you able to maybe double major? Can you do a major in another school, um, you know, or a minor? Are there, you know, what restrictions are there? Um, I think a good question to ask is, is also, you know, how, what's the completion rate? How many, you know, what is the graduation rate? Do students stick with the honors program? You know, it's it kind of like what you would be probably researching for a college in, in general, but this, you know, that also can really help. Um, what GPA do I have to maintain, you know, so that, you know, going forward, okay, what's, you know, how, um, what do I need to do in order to, to be able to stay? Um, all of those things are great to have. Again, the more information you have in, in the beginning, that helps you make the most informed decision and decide, especially with all the work involved in the essay writing. You know, you don't want to be doing all of that if it really ends up being not something that's going to be a good fit for you for one reason or another. So, you know, research first. And then and then if you feel like, yep, heck, I'm going to go for it, then then, you know, spend give yourself the time that those essays and those applications are going to to require because they are they are pretty intense. Yeah, especially that Penn State there. nasty with those (laughs) questions but I I assume that is an effective way for them to um get a a good match in terms of just their applicant pool itself if you're not prepared to do that kind of work and put that sort of you know intellectual commitment (laughs) into completing these difficult essay questions, you're probably not the right fit for, for their honors college. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I think that sometimes that's, that's why they do it. And that's a great way also for you. If you, if those questions yeah. scare you, then maybe that's not, that's not the best, yeah. the best place to put your, your energy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's perfect sense. Well, thank you so much, Julia, even having attended an honors college, I learned so much from you in this segment and, and I'm sure that our listeners did too. So thank you so much for joining us today so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And listeners, stick around because in the next segment, we will be answering your questions. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. And we are now going to do my favorite thing. If, if you listen to the show regularly, you're like, I get it, Shannon. I know this is your favorite thing. But listener questions. Um, I, we love being able to talk. You know, we, we, we t- try to deliver what we think the listeners want. But here you have directly told us, please, Shannon, Sally, answer these questions for for me. So we're we're happy to do so. If you do have questions for us, we're always in the market for more questions. Please send them to us. You can go to our website and um, navigate to the the podcast area of our website, and there's a little um, form there where you can submit your questions. You can email us gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. You can also send us messages on any of our social media channels, Facebook. Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, we're everywhere. So just reach out to us uh, wherever you are. We are there. Um, So feel free. When actually brand new breaking news, we have a TikTok now. We have literally put out one video on our TikTok. We're going to do kind of a slow rollout. We're still figuring it out. So don't send us nasty comments. We're figuring out how to tick and to talk. As as the kids definitely do not um, say. Yeah, I was going to say the kids <laughs> do not say that, Shannon. Middle aged ladies but, like us say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're giving it a go. So send us your questions, and we are happy to to get to them. And as you have already heard, with me today to answer your questions is former admissions officer at Whittier Reed, Chicago. And of course, you know her, you love her. Long time getting in host, Sally Ganga. Welcome, Sally. Thanks for for hopping on the pod on your week off from hosting duty. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. As I was telling Shannon before we went live on this, um, this is so much fun for me. I don't have to have the responsibility of the hosting duties, but you guys have to listen to me talk. I mean, what's more ideal than that? Exactly. <laughs> Everyone is thrilled. So we can just dig into our list of questions, Sally. And the first one was submitted to us through Facebook. Um, and this parent asks, my daughter has more than 10 activities and we're trying to choose the most important 10 to list on her common app activities page. One of her activities is being one of four officers in the National Honor Society at her high school. 
The officers run chapter meetings, plan and run the induction ceremony, find community service opportunities for members and track volunteer hours. We were thinking of moving that activity to the honors section, to the honors section uh, instead of the activity section uh, by adding a brief description after National Honor Society. Would it get lost by doing that? She also had two summer jobs and we could cut one of her jobs instead. It will still be on her resume. What would you suggest in this situation? And I had to read it through a couple of times before, before I got the question. I think they have too many, the daughter has too many activities for the activity section on the common app. Is it capped at 10 activities, Sally? So yeah, exactly. Make some decisions yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. yeah. And some schools even cap it at less. Like I think, uh, I think Lafayette is only permitting six. I think MIT has four or five. I mean, not saying that this is relevant for this particular student, but um, so it, it, this one is tricky. Generally speaking, National Honor Society, you can put in the honors section, absolutely. But because this student has some important leadership, I'm feeling like it should stay in the activity section. Um, also, because there's not much space for descriptor allowed in the honor section of the common application. Mm-hmm. That said, if she is able to fit everything in, I don't see how she can, but maybe they've come up with a very creative way to fit in mm-hmm. everything. Um, because uh, honestly, part of the what's tricky is that although the National Honor Society is national, what the students do and how it's organized at each school is also individual. So they're not automatically going to know that as an officer, you know, she runs chapter meetings, she plans the induction ceremony, she finds community service opportunities. That is often not something that students do. Um, She tracks the volunteer hours. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that at other high schools might be done by the advisor or somebody else. So I'm I'm thinking, keep it on the activity list. Um, The part-time job, although jobs are very valuable and I don't want to diminish that, if she wasn't in any sort of a leadership position, I'm thinking that like the right thing to do is what they propose, which is to take one of the summer jobs off the resume. That makes sense. And I think you have a question for me. Yes, I do. All right. So this question is, uh, my son is in 12th grade and is working on his college applications. We will be applying for financial aid, but I'm worried that the large balance we've got in our savings account will disqualify my son for aid. We're planning on some major home improvements in the next six months or so, and that work will use up most of our savings. How do we let the colleges know that 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 money is spoken for and won't be available for college? Great question. And I would say, first of all, an important point to note is that assets like a savings account tend to have minimal impact on the financial aid formula, at least compared to your income. Um, The colleges generally expect parents to be able to contribute um, something like 20 to 30% of their income each year to college. It's very, very significant. Whereas only anywhere from zero to 6% of their assets, those are the numbers feeding into the financial aid formula. So for most people, it is not the amount of your savings that is making or breaking your financial aid eligibility. It is largely driven by your income. So I think 
That's important to note upfront. Now, and even taking a small percentage of assets, you know, the balance in that savings account is high enough, it certainly could have an impact on financial aid. Um, so there are, I think, two different strategies you can use here if you know, the money sitting in this account is really sort of earmarked in your mind for home improvements. Um, that's not necessarily visible to the colleges or, and they may not necessarily agree with your earmarking. They don't have to you know, abide by that. So the most effective strategy, if you want that money eliminated for financial aid purposes, is simply to spend it down before the financial aid application process. So I know you say that you are planning on these home improvements in the next six months or so. I will tell you, you've got actually sort of a little bit of an expanded window of opportunity this year as opposed to other years. Um, historically, the FAFSA becomes available every year on October 1st, and we tend to recommend completing it sooner rather than later. This year, the FAFSA is going to be delayed until December. We still don't have a specific date in December. We don't know if it'll be December 1st, December 31st, but you've got an extra couple months here. So um, if you are very concerned about that balance in your account and the if it's significant and it may have an impact on financial aid eligibility, you could try and get your home improvements done sooner rather than later, get that money out of the account and spent. That, that's the really the only way to sort of guarantee that it won't be considered for financial aid purposes. Now, if you can't do that, can't get it done on time, sometimes it's hard to to get track down a contractor and get them to to work on your schedule. Um, If you can't get it done on time or for whatever reason, don't um, don't want to have this work done before December and when you're likely going to be filling out the FAFSA, you can always let colleges know about any special financial circumstances that you have by writing them what's generally called an appeal letter. You you send an email into the financial aid office explaining whatever sort of special circumstances that you have that aren't evident on the FAFSA. The FAFSA asks a very limited number of questions, certainly will not ask you, hey, did you this amount in your savings account. Did you want to spend that on college or did you want to spend that on somebody, <laughs> something else? They're not going to ask you that question. So if that money is earmarked for home improvements, you can send a letter to the financial aid office at, at any of the schools your child is, is applying to, um, letting them know that. And what I will say is you will have better luck um, you know, asking them to exclude this money from their calculations um, if the appeal explains that these are really necessary repairs, you know, a hurricane came and blew the roof off my house, clearly you have to re- replace the roof on your house. It is not something that's optional. You will have less luck if it's just, you know, I want a fancier, nicer kitchen. In that circumstance, they are not likely to uh, exclude those assets from the calculations. Uh, but that's but that's what I would say. First of all, unless it's a huge amount of money, don't you don't necessarily need to worry about it. It's probably not going to make or break you. Uh, but if it is large enough to make a real difference, the most effective strategy is spend it down. If you can't do that 
before applying for financial aid, you could send in that appeal letter, ask the schools to remove it from their calculations. It's at their discretion, but they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I was kind of thinking, you know, saying that my uh, my kitchen is slightly dated is not going to go far. But exactly. on the other hand, there's been major damage from a flood. Yes. Yes, that would exactly right. get some sympathy. So, yeah. 100%. So the next question is for you, Sally. Uh, fairly straightforward, though. <laughs> straightforward questions are, are, there's always an it depends in there somewhere. But the question is, how do I decide what my early decision school should be? And, and I think it's interesting. The questioner here seems to assume that there has to be an early decision school. So I think I would add to it, how do I decide if I should apply early decision anywhere? And then if so, where that place would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I get it. Like it's tricky. Early decision does in almost all cases confer an advantage. And in some places it's a significant advantage where, you know, 50% to 60% of the class might be filled during early decision, which I frankly think is unethical. I have issues with that. On the other hand, Colleges are also trying to survive in some cases. I'm less sympathetic to the highly popular ones that play those games. But, you know, so um, so anyway, it is tricky. Yes, early decision confers an advantage. That being said, should you commit to a school early decision automatically? The answer is no. I will tell you that the worst case scenario is not that you don't get into your top choice school. It's that you are admitted early decision to a school that you decide you don't actually want to attend. That is actually the worst case scenario. So I cannot stress that enough. You really should not be committing early decision to a school that you are not 100% absolutely completely thrilled about. Um, You know, a colleague of mine described it as, is this a school where you like go down rabbit holes, you stalk multiple students on Instagram, you follow lots of, uh, you know, you follow lots of organizations, you're just fascinated by the school, you love it so much, you went for a visit, I think that's important to note, Mm -hmm. and you loved it. But not just that, you've also visited other schools, because I mean, I was talking to a student of mine who she really thought one particular school was her first choice and she still likes it. But she realized after she visited more schools that there are lots of great colleges out there. And I was like, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to have visited other colleges, too, or you really haven't done your due diligence. But if you visited your other colleges and if this is the college that you really want, And if you are aware of the financial implications, and I think I will pull you in for this, Shannon, of applying or, you know, getting in early decision and committing to this school, um, then absolutely, you love the college, it's your top choice, like absolutely then make that commitment. But I'm going to, Shannon, I'm going to actually say this first and make, you can tell me if I'm correct. What I tell students is you've done your due diligence with the net price calculator to make sure that this is an affordable option. Um, You know, that being the big thing. And you're willing to forego the opportunity to compare aid packages with other schools. Anything to add to that? Did I get that right? I think you absolutely nailed it. So yes, you do the net price calculator on the school's website that number that it shows you as your bottom line, 
can you and are you, are you willing and able to pay that amount for this school? Mm-hmm. Um, you are committing to attend this school. When you apply early decision, just step back a bit. Saying, you are committing to this school um, regardless of if they offer you scholarship money. Um, so you really need to be comfortable with that price that the net price calculator shows you. That is in all likelihood what the school will cost you. So don't, if it shows you a number you couldn't imagine ever affording, that is a very clear uh, clue that this is not the right early decision school for you because you are committing to attend essentially at that price. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think your second point in terms of the finances is, is, equally important Mm -hmm. maybe you could afford that price so making sure you can afford it i think is step one step two is even if you could afford it what if schools you know was presumably you're playing early decision to your number one choice school what if schools you know two three and four on your list offered you great scholarships and were much much less expensive than school number one would it still be your first choice? Uh, and if the answer is no, then I think again, that early decision is not the right move for you because you do give up that ability to compare, potentially negotiate offers mm-hmm. from other schools. That's another thing that's off the table with early decision. You can't go back to them and say, schools X, Y, and Z gave me more money. Is there anything else you can do? No, <laughs> you mm-hmm. knew the price. You filled out the net price calculator. You committed to attending. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I should say, if there's something happens in your financial circumstances, mm-hmm. and we've run across this certainly a number of times, and it's a sad situation where the student applied early decision in good faith, mm-hmm. thinking they could afford this school, and then a parent loses a job, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's not feasible. In those circumstances, you can go back to the school and ask to be released from your early decision contract because you have had this this change in circumstances where it is no longer financially possible. Mm -hmm. Um, But as long as you are are applying in good faith, having done your due diligence, you should be a okay. Mm -hmm. I'll also just mention too, this is not on the financial side, but I had a student who applied early decision to a school and that her mother was diagnosed with a serious ongoing illness and she just felt like she couldn't be that far away. So something like that also, of course, of course, the colleges have compassion, but they want to make sure that you're honoring the agreement as it is intended. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like I actually have another one for you, Sally. Why do I need two safety schools for my list? Isn't one enough? So what do you recommend, Sally, in terms of the number of safety schools on your list? Mm -hmm. One is not enough because (laughs) college admissions has become very unpredictable. I mean, a good example to use at this point is Northeastern. Northeastern has become so selective, it has outpaced Boston University, which used to be much more selective, um, not by a huge amount, but nonetheless, I I mean, honestly, when I started working for Bright Horizons College Coach, much less when I became a high school counselor, Northeastern um, was, uh, it's always been an excellent school, but it was much easier to get into. It was a little more regional as opposed to nationally known. Um, It was just a different kind of institution. Northeastern set its sights on becoming much more selective. They achieved that. And then I think, you know, with the additional focus on um, 
you know, prepare preparation for the workforce, their co-op program became just so popular, so much more so than it had been. So again, so like when that was transitioning, there were times when I would have initially at the beginning of that, I would have said, you know what, based on last year's numbers, Northeastern is a safety for you. And guess what? In one year, Northeastern went up, I think 20% was their admit rate. It might have even been more than that in one year, or I'm sorry, it dropped by 20%. Yes. Excuse me, I misspoke. So it went from, for like a particular student who might've had it as, as a safety, it was no longer a safety. It was kind of a mid-range school. So that can happen quite dramatically. It's, it happened with another student of mine with a completely different school. He and his parents decided to completely disregard my advice, apply to one safety, which he then didn't get into. And luckily they had listened to me on one of the schools. This kid got into one college. I mean, I was freaked out. He did not even tell me, this is when I was a high school counselor. So I was having conversations with the schools and they're like, oh yeah, he never applied. So I'm having like minor heart attacks. This kid isn't getting in anywhere because he's only applied to one safety, which was no longer safety. He applies to reach schools. He's not getting in there. I am completely freaked out. Luckily, he gets into one college, which was not a safety, but you know, you get into the mid-range schools. Luckily, he liked it. Otherwise, he would have had to start all over again the next year. Believe me, when I had a kind of a stern conversation with him and his family. Anyway, this is a long way of saying you need two safeties. And in <laughs> fact, you need it even worse now than you used to. Things have become yeah. so much more unpredictable with um, colleges not necessarily needing test scores in many cases. It's much harder to judge who's going to come in. And everything post-pandemic has just become a little bit more unpredictable. On top of that, by the way, if you are applying into a highly selective major like engineering, mm. computer science, nursing, I think you should apply to four safeties because yeah. you might be very competitive for that college for an English major or a history major or a math major or a physics major, but not be as competitive for those fields. Now, the good news is a lot of these colleges will still admit you um, to kind of like the School of Arts and Sciences, even if you don't get into engineering or computer science, but not all of them. Not all of them will. And the other thing is, if you're completely committed to that major, you want to maximize your chances of getting into a school that will actually allow you to do that major. So, yes, yes not only two, maybe more, depending <laughs> on your major. But if you're a history major like I was, probably two is enough. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> and Sally, do schools, is there a danger that a school, not because you're applying to a more competitive major but they believe based on grades, test scores, your application, they are a safety school for you. They don't think that you will come. Do schools do that sort of like a yield protection technique where they're, they're sort of, I equate it to like middle school kind of dating, like I'm going to dump you before you dump me kind of thing? Do, mm -hmm. do schools play that game? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And actually, I'm just going to put in a little plug. I think sometimes pe people on this podcast have probably heard me talk about how much I dislike US News and World Report. <laughs> One of the reasons is that at least historically, their calculations included yield rate. So yield rate is 
um, the percentage of students who you admit who decide to attend as a college, right? So because those rankings are so powerful, colleges have paid, started paying a lot of attention to yield rate. And it's very challenging for them to not do so because they have presidents and board of trustees breathing down their neck about the this ranking, which is frankly meaningless when it comes to the quality of the education and the student experience. But nonetheless, the dean of admission is having to, being held to account for this. So anyway, so one of the ways they protect themselves is if they think a student will not attend, yes, they might waitlist that student. That's the most common thing if a student is very, very strong. And I can tell you that as someone who worked at a high school, I would see very shocking examples of that. One school that is extremely popular that I will not say the name of, but promises they don't do it anymore. They used to, I would see them, they would waitlist the top of the class. They would admit kind of the 10 to 20% ranking. We didn't really rank, but you could kind of figure it out. And then they'd waitlist almost down to the 50% part of the class. It was so bad that when students told me they were applying, I would say, look, just be ready to be waitlisted. That's probably what's going to happen. And it was 100% a yield exercise so that they could rise in the rankings. Now, how do you get past this? What if a school is the safety for you or kind of a mid-range, but you really love it? Maybe it's your top choice. Well, applying early decision, they're obviously not going to play those games. Help going to visit is helpful, although it's not the end-all be-all. Um, it is also very, very helpful to maybe engage, like if they have an event in town, go to the event, say hi to the admission counselor who's running the event, send that admission counselor an email saying, thank you so much for your time. It was great meeting you. I enjoyed our discussion. Um, you know, follow them on social media. Colleges have ways of tracking all these things. So that was maybe a lot more information than that person initially wanted when they asked <laughs> why I need to safety schools, but it is highly relevant. So I'm glad that you followed up with that. Yeah, that's super, super helpful tip where mm -hmm. demonstrating interest can, can potentially make the difference. And to mm -hmm. reiterate your point, at least two safety schools, if not at more. At least, yes. <laughs> All right. Perfect. All right. So I think it's, uh, I now ask you a question. Yeah. Um, all right. So we will have two kids in college in 2024. My oldest just started having gone through the college admissions and financial aid processes last year. And my youngest is about to start applying to college and is finalizing her list. We've done the FAFSA once for the oldest, but now how does it work with two kids in college? How do we add them both to our FAFSA? So I will start by saying as a parent of a student, you do not have a FAFSA who has the FAFSA is the student themselves. So for you are not doing anything to add your younger child to your existing FAFSA, you will now be completing two FAFSAs, or I should say adding your information to your oldest child's FAFSA and your youngest child's FAFSA. There will be two FAFSAs in your family. Um, we, Historically, there has been a way to transfer parental information from one student's FAFSA to the other student's FAFSA or multiple students' FAFSAs if you if you have more than one child in college at the same time. Um, they, they're making a number, if you're a regular listener to our show, you know they're making a number of changes to the FAFSA this year. I haven't found 100% confirmation that that 
information transfer process is is still going to happen. Uh, but I hope that it does because it, it made things a lot easier. So what I would recommend that you do is start by filling out the FAFSA for the older student who is already enrolled in college. And because there will be having already done it before, some of your information will be pre-populated. Um, once that FAFSA is done and submitted, uh, again, historically on that kind of final, thank you for filling out your FAFSA paid, there has been an option there, a one-time option to where it says something to the effect of, I have another student going to college. Uh, I would like to transfer my information to, to their FAFSA. There's been a, like a button you can press, um, but it's sort of a one-time option. If you're like, it's late, I'll do the other student's FAFSA tomorrow. You won't have that option of transferring your information. Uh, so start with the older students' FAFSA, get theirs done, and then assuming it offers you the option, which I hope it will this year, transfer that information to your younger child's FAFSA uh, because there, you will have to complete the two this year um, when you have the two in college. Um, and I think we maybe have time to squeeze in a quick answer to this question if you can. Um, Sally, doesn't... I love the assumption built in here. Doesn't applying to all the Ivy League colleges increase my chances of getting accepted into one? Is that how statistics work, Sally? Yeah, no, it is not. Not in this situation. <laughs> it is not additive. If the statistical odds of getting into an Ivy uh, is 4%, then applying to all of them, it is still 4%, right? Uh -huh. It does not add. I had a lot of people say, Back when they were 10%, they were like, well, if I apply to 10, then that means I have 100% odds of getting, getting into one. one. That is not true at all. That yeah. being said, if you are highly, highly, highly competitive, obviously applying to more than one is a good idea. But part of what you want to do is apply to those schools that are a very good match for you, do an excellent job on that application, which if you're applying to a billion schools, you do not have time to do. So I'll just leave it at that because I know we're trying to like wrap things up here. Yep. Makes sense. Thank you for the, for the mini statistics lesson, Sally. <laughs> you are multi-talented. <laughs> thank you for, for joining uh, me today again on your sort of week off, Sally. So, so thanks so much. This is no been problem. Yeah, very fun. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you listeners for joining. Uh, if you did enjoy this episode and how could you not when Sally is here? please definitely leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate the feedback and it does help more families to find us. And we would love for you to join us next week as well when we're going to be talking about the various types of college application deadlines. We talked about early decision a little bit today, but early decision, early action, rolling, regular, what do all these things mean? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the role that parents should play in the college admissions process. So that should definitely be interesting. Uh, and one place where parents need to play a role is in the financial aid application process. And that's going to be our third topic next week, when, how, whether you should apply for financial aid at all. Uh, so tune in next week. And remember, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit getintocollege.com.